Welcome to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast, brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. This podcast is presented by Dr. Derek Mahoney, an orthodontist who has lectured in over 120 countries about early intervention orthodontics, something that has a profound impact on sleep health. Dr. Mahoney says his passion is helping young people achieve a better life through better sleep. In this podcast, he will be speaking to the world's leading medical minds about all things kids' sleep health. So tune in, because the secret to kids' sleep might be right under their nose. So um, it gives me uh, great uh, pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Larry Kalish, who is an inner earth and throat specialist that I've worked with uh, for many years. Uh, Larry, thank you very much uh, for doing this uh, podcast on a, uh, a Sunday. I believe you've just come back from a run. Yes, thank you. And nice stripping wet from the beautiful rain. <laughs> um, so Larry, um, as you know, we have a number of common patients uh, who I see with narrow palates um, and uh, mouth breathing tendency. And then when I send them to you for an evaluation, you're very good at um, picking up the, the allergy side of things. And of course, uh, I think in, in Australia, uh, the majority of kids that I see um, have either broken their nose or have some form of nasal allergy. So uh, you must be uh, uh, quite busy there. Can you, can you just run through for a parent um, how you diagnose um, an allergy and specifically the dust mite type problems? No problem at all. Thanks so much. Now, yeah, Australia um, is a wonderful country for allergists. It's uh, the allergy center of the world. Uh, in children, about 10% of all children would have an allergy. But uh, as we get older, it, it becomes about as many as 25%. One in four adults would have an allergy. Um, the allergies can be to a wide range of things. Um, pollen allergies are actually very high and prevalent as well in Sydney and, and in other parts of the East Coast. But dust mite tends to be the most common allergen. And it's a perennial allergen. That means it's there all year round, affecting patients all year round. Um, diagnosis is always a, a variety of things. Um, history is very, very important. Um, sometimes um, patients will have typical symptoms, and those will be the really itchy nose and itchy eyes and itchy ears and itchy throat. I grew up as a very allergic child, so I drove my parents mad with funny sounds, <coughs> scratching my throat. So if you notice, your kid is always making funny throat sounds, sniffing a lot, rubbing their nose, rubbing their eyes. Those are classical signs. Some people have less classical signs. They may have a very blocked nose and a running nose. Uh, frequently with dust mite allergies, we see that patients have the worst symptoms first thing in the morning because we spend all night with our head in a pillow. And although that sounds luxurious, it's often a pillow full of dust mite. So we often will see a kid will wake up with a runny nose and sneezing, a very classic sign for uh, dust mite allergies. Um, and uh, if I... If I uh... You know, the majority of people listening here would be uh, uh, parents of kids who are probably having the exact symptoms you're describing. Um, when they go and visit you or their family GP, are there certain things they should stop doing, like if they're taking Claritine every day? Uh, what, what do you recommend before your first consultation with these parents? Um, well, just, for a, just from a consultation point of view, we do ask them to stop oral antihistamines three days prior simply to allow us to do a skin prick test. So part of the way of diagnosing um, allergy would be to do a skin prick test. Um, again, you know, the history is very typical, what the kid looks like or 
or, or, or the appearance of the child is often very typical. I often joke around that you could see an allergic kid coming through the door. The diagnosis is made in the waiting room. It's a kid with the puffy eyes and the, uh, the, the little wrinkles under their eyes, which we call Denny Morgan eyes, or they've got a little salute, nasal salute, this little line across their nose, um, and also a very drippy and runny nose, which is usually a clear discharge. But coming into a, the appointment, it's just coming in with a history. It's coming in with uh, anybody who suspects there's an allergy. And the only thing the parent really needs to do is, is stop the typical medications three days before to facilitate uh, uh, testing. And Larry, you talked about um, skin print tests. Um, what other tests are there? What about, uh, are there blood tests to, uh, to ascertain certain allergens? Yeah, so we can diagnose a variety of different ways. Um, again, the most sensitive, but is only mainly used in our research laboratories, is what we call nasal provocation testing, where we put little allergens inside the nose and look for a reaction. Uh, we can do swabs inside the nose and uh, pick up what's called um, IgE-specific, so little specific allergens in the nose. But more typically in a, in a um, consultation, an allergist would be a skin prick test. So when a child is born, um, they're not born with allergies. They usually develop allergies at a young age. The first signs are usually eczema. And the first uh, a point of allergen will be in the nose. So again, if you took a newborn baby and you tested their nose, you're more likely to get a positive test. It then manifests in the skin. So again, the eczema that we see in children. So skin prick tests tend to be very sensitive as well. And the blood tests, which can be done, are the least sensitive or the last. We also know that skin prick tests give us more information. They tell us not only if you're allergic, but how allergic you are. Whereas blood tests just point to whether you're allergic or not allergic. And um, as far as uh, medications, you know, when do you suggest an antihistamine versus corticosteroid versus a decongestant, uh, uh, et cetera? So we avoid decongestants. Uh, I could start with that one. That's an easy one. Um, we, we, when we have any child who's allergic, it always kind of breaks it up into children who have very minute, mild allergies. What's a mild allergy? Well, occasionally the kid's a little bit symptomatic, in which case a simple over-the-counter oral antihistamine is suitable. But any child which has a more severe allergy, or a severe allergy is an allergy that's bothering them, bothering them in that they're not sleeping well, that mother's worried, the nose seems to be obstructed. And for those reasons, they would definitely need uh, intervention. And the best interventions are actually topical steroids. And you could start with a simple over-the-counter topical steroid um, as our best option, obviously. Um, and then there are more sophisticated combination steroids, which are steroid antihistamine sprays, which can be prescribed by doctors. And um, uh, what about uh, some of these things, uh, such as the... Uh, um, uh, are, they, are they called... Uh, correct terminology, leukotritive modifiers? Leukotriene uh, modifiers, leukotriene inhibitors. Yeah. Um, so that's a medication such as uh, Montelukast or Singulair. Yeah. There's a role for those um, in, in patients who are asthmatic as well. So we know that allergy is very significant because it's the start of a, what we call an allergic pathway. The child starts with an itchy nose, then allergies, and then they can develop asthma. And when we get a child who already has asthma, then we like to intervene with a variety of interventions, of which the leukotriene inhibitors or, or Montelukast is a, is a treatment option. 
I'm not a fan. I'm a big fan of starting simple and starting with uh, topical steroid sprays. We've done a lot of research demonstrating just how safe these steroid sprays are. So the analogy I like to give all my patients is that most of these medicines do work. But if you were taking on the monster, the allergy monster, and it was coming to attack you, an oral antihistamine is kind of like holding a knife in your hand. And right. that could be very similar for the Montelukost. Mm-hmm. It may work, but uh, not that effective. A yeah. topical steroid is kind of like hand, holding a handgun in your hand. Yeah. And the combination steroid, which is the steroid antihistamine sprays, is like having a machine gun in your hand. Yeah. If you're taking on this allergy monster, you've got to think, you know, all of these medicines work, but what would you rather be armed with? And Larry, I know that some of the patients I've sent to you respond well to that first course. Others, you start discussing with the parents about immunotherapy. Can you lead us through what is the current thoughts on immunotherapy? I mean, I've had some patients who uh, have a drop uh, under the tongue. Others have an injection and they all kind of uh, say to me, it's quite a rigid thing. If they miss one week, they're almost back to zero. Can you help parents understand immunotherapy for their kids' allergies, please? Definitely. So all of the drugs which we've talked about so far, whether it's antihistamines or sprays, are just symptom control. And they are safe and can be taken for long term. I always remind the patients, I'm highly allergic myself and I've been on a topical steroid spray for 42 years, even though I'm only 37 years of age. And, um, and, uh, and it is safe for long term. But there are disease modifiers. And a disease modifier would be an immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is literally giving a little bit of the dust mite allergen every day over a course of three to five years in order to desensitize, actually change the body's response to an allergy so the patients are no longer allergic. So it's a very attractive uh, treatment because it's the only thing that could essentially cure, if you want to call it that, the disease itself. The problem has always been cost, compliance, and delivery. And more and more, it's becoming safer, it's becoming uh, uh, um, easier to use and more affordable. So in my practice with children, our preference is uh, tablets. So there are a number of different tablets that can be applied. As long as the child is old enough to hold a tablet under their tongue for two minutes. And the reason for that is that if you swallow it too quickly or let it get around your mouth, the side effects are just slightly higher. So if you put a tablet under their tongue, they could hold it there for two minutes so it dissolves. The symptoms may be things like an irritable mouth or little bit of ulceration sometimes if they swallow too soon they could get an upset stomach but other than that it's incredibly safe the next step is compliance you have to keep it going continuously for a minimum of three years sometimes up to five and it takes three to six months before it's effective so which is always a a, a bit of a struggle to convince someone to take a medicine where they don't see any symptom improvement for up to six months but I always try in combination with other medicines to convince the patients to use it because, as I said, it's a disease modifier and it has a great impact in their long-term health. And I did it with my son, and it wasn't easy. And you can miss one or two days. That's not a problem. But if you miss a couple of uh, weeks, the body reverts back to its allergic status. So we pushed ahead for all, just under three years. Uh, that was the old days where you had drops that had to be kept in the fridge, real nuisance or very expensive but it was a wonderful outcome. And of my all three kids are all allergic. Uh, he's actually had the best outcome and relies the least on topical medications. So it's an effective treatment. It's safe. Subcutaneous immunotherapy is injection immunotherapy. Harder to convince kids, but some kids won't mind it. That's easier from a compliance point of view because it's a weekly injection for one month and then a monthly injection for the rest of the time. 
And because it's an injection, it's an appointment with a doctor or the GP, people tend to uh, uh, stick to that as well. So that is an alternate uh, equal uh, efficacy, but uh, better compliance with injections than there is with uh, tablets. And um, what about um, lifestyle or sort of home remedies? I know that uh, in your letters, which are very detailed, thank you very much, um, you, you uh, discuss the, uh, the possibility of eliminating uh, carpet and curtains. Can you talk parents through a little bit of that for dust mite? Sure. So um, from an environmental measure, it's actually the least effective of all the treatments, but it is something you could implement straight away. The best by far is the uh, dust mite protectors on your bed because you are literally sleeping in the dust mite. So I recommend uh, good quality dust mite protectors. Uh, they are like in anything in life. They have varying qualities. There's some outstanding uh, brands and that really is safe. So my kids go off to their camp. They just take the pillow case. They don't take the whole pillow. And when they get to camp, they stick their the camp pillow um, into the dust mite protector and it gives them a very a good sense of protection. The next one is just being careful with the fluffy toys around the kids. Kids who still like fluffy toys. I don't like to deprive a child of their fluffy toys. So if they cannot get rid of it, we do things like keep it in the freezer overnight or put it into the washing at a, at a, at a hot setting so that we can uh, improve it. Same with uh, all the linen. We make sure the linen is all washed in hot settings. Carpeting is more controversial. I'd never make somebody pull out the carpets in their house when a simple, simple typical steroid spray or combination spray in the nose would be probably more effective. But we do talk about having a good quality vacuum cleaner. One of the worst things that happens is that people do all make such a great effort for dust mite uh, protection and then come along with a vacuum cleaner that aerosolizes. That means it shoots the dust mites into the air and actually makes people more allergic. So having what's called a HEPA filter on your vacuum is very, very important. If you've got a good quality vacuum cleaner, you pull away the fluffy toys, you have a good uh, dust mite protector on your, on your bedding, and you use your medications, most kids, even the highly allergic kids, do exceptionally well. And um, what, what would happen if um, a parent doesn't treat their kids' ongoing allergies? What's the worst-case scenario? Well, the worst-case scenario is a number of factors, unfortunately. Topically to the nose, the kids often rub their nose to the point that they get a line across the top of their nose. I, when I was young, rubbed my eyes so much that I now wear glasses. So astigmatism is a condition in the eye where uh, often people need uh, glasses, and that could come simply from rubbing their eyes. They get a blocked nose, and a blocked nose, as you very well know, leads to high arch palates, sometimes to grinding, sometimes to facial changes, sometimes to jaw problems. They don't sleep well. We've done a lot of research on sleep quality, and we know that kids who sleep with their mouth open tend to uh, sleep poorly. And obviously, there's what we call the allergic march, which is an uncontrolled um, allergy will lead not only from allergic rhinitis, but eventually to asthma as well. And, you know, asthma is a serious condition in kids and a preventable condition. In fact, I see kids in reverse who've had poorly controlled asthma and nobody's ever bothered to look into their nose. And when we medically manage their nose, their asthma is better controlled. What about, um, I mean, lately, uh, in, uh, particularly social media, uh, et cetera, there's a lot of talk about the benefits of breathing through your nose. And uh, a guy called James Nestor uh, has written a book called Breathe, which is one of the New York Times bestsellers. And it's really targeting uh, mouth breathing in adults. Can you, can you talk to us about, um, you know, the, the non-child uh, who's uh, snores uh, constantly uh, mouth open? Uh, is that more 
physical obstructions that you do with all this, is, can allergy still be causing that in the, in the adult patient? Uh, allergy very much, both in kid and adult. So yeah, James Nestle's book is excellent. Uh, he's, I've got it up on my, my um, desk in, in my rooms. There's a big movement now on mouth taping and the importance of nose breathing. And I'd love to chat to you about all the phenomenal research coming out in how important it is just to breathe through your nose. And that starts as a child. So we've done a lot of research now on kids from the age of 5 to 15 who have tried medicines but struggle to breathe through their nose. And we're doing procedures on their nose called inferior turbinoplasties where we're opening up their airway. And that does a few things. One, it facilitates the delivery of medicines into the nose. I always uh, laugh if a medicine is so effective, patients say, well, then why isn't it working for my child? And I say, well, if your child's got a pimple on their nose and you're putting the cream on their cheek, that pimple's not going to get any better. And a child has got a completely blocked nose, but the spray doesn't go in into their nose, needs that, the airway open, same with an adult. And we've done research demonstrating that opening up an airway um, improves sleep quality and allergy control at one year post-op. And it's exactly the same in adults. We spend a lot of our time um, surgically addressing nasal airways so that patients can breathe better through their nose to improve their sleep quality and improve their management of their underlying uh, uh, snoring and sleep apnea. So when, when would um, you say to a parent who, say, tried Nasonex, et cetera, uh, and uh, compliance has been poor or the kid has used it and it hasn't made an effect, when would you then recommend, say, an inferior turbinectomy? One month, two months? Sure. So we'd always be an inferior turbinoplasty, and I only say use that term that we reshape, we don't cut out. That was an old technique that didn't work very well. Um, the, what we do is that we, any child who is severe enough that they warrant sprays, um, and those sprays fail should see an ENT surgeon. And then that ENT in my hands gets at least six weeks and we vary the type of spray. So we either demonstrate how to be compliant. We change the spray to a combination spray, or we put them on a high dose steroid drop. And we give them all of those three options so that they, we know we're giving every effort for, for a, a medical option. We then bring them back. They'll obviously be allergy testing, tested, confirming their allergy, and we'll try and modify the environment. But after six weeks, if a child is still objectively mouth-breathing, unsettled, having trouble controlling the allergies, then we'll talk to them about surgical intervention. Now, I have a lot of parents who um, reach out to me and they say, look, um, my kid has had the tonsils and adenoids removed, and yes, uh, in the first uh, month, uh, we could see they stopped snoring and they were sleeping better. But now they're reverting back to um, old habits of uh, having their mouth open and chewing with their mouth open. What, what are your thoughts on retraining such as a micropore tape on the kid's lip, et cetera? So again, I love that point because that was exactly the complaints we saw time and time again with our own patients that made us want to address the nose. The problem is adenoids at the back of the nose, if you think the very back of the nose, and adenoids very rarely block the nose. A big misconception that large adenoids obstruct the nose. In fact, in thousands of cases, we'd only see probably 5%, maybe less, of patients who have pure nasal obstruction from adenoids alone. What blocks the nose is the front of the nose, the turbinates. If you look into a child's nose, there'll be two red things on the side, swollen, that people often think are polyps, and they're not, they're the turbinates, and that's where the nose is blocked. So if you've had an adenotonsillectomy and, and still snoring, you want to fix the front of the nose. And we do this just like we described. We, you start with, um, with, with sprays and medications. 
And at the same time, you can train a child because some children, as you correctly say, are just habitual mouth breathers. They like to breathe through their mouth. So we give a whole bunch of very simple exercises to get the children to breathe through their nose. If they struggle to do it, we definitely won't tape them. I think there'd be a lot of lawsuits out there against me if I was recommending taping a child's mouth closed when their nose is blocked from their turbinates. What we, when we introduce tape and snoring chin straps and sleep cue plus uh, wax is after we've addressed the turbinates in their nose. Once we know the child has a good airway, but is still sleeping poorly, we then reestablish the nasal airway and do that through mouth training. And there's some unbelievably good oral myologists. There's some uh, fantastic uh, 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 physiotherapists who work with nasal breathing. And there are some simple techniques like taking dad's credit card, putting it between your lips, and, and just keeping your mouth closed, breathing in and out of your nose while you watch an extra half an hour of TV, or putting mirrors under children's noses to demonstrate how to mist up the mirror and make sure they're using their nose, or simple things like just getting your kid to blow their nose frequently is sometimes a very effective treatment uh, to try and improve their nasal airflow. And the last thing I wanted to chat about is, um, you know, in the current COVID uh, uh, climate, um, you know, I've had, uh, well, most people are aware of how they test for COVID. Um, and I've had some parents who say, well, look, um, seeing that they test in those areas, is it worthwhile for me to do a saline rinse uh, and gargle my throat with uh, saline on a daily basis? Any thoughts on that? There's some help um, with the saline rinse in what we call good nasal health. So, you know, keep your nose moist. Your nose wants to be moist and doing a saline rinse is, is quite effective. But there's no evidence that a saline rinse alone is effective in actually treating um, any allergies. If you, your nose is blocked, if you are exhibiting allergy symptoms, then, uh, again, the things we've mentioned before, whether it's oral antihistamines, topical antihistamines, or topical steroids, or combination of the two, is the most effective treatment option. And I, I although, oral anti, although uh, saline rinses definitely are helpful, I try to keep things simple. The, the more you try and make your child do, the less likely they are to do anything. So if they're going to do one thing, it would rather be a topical steroid spray um, than, uh, than, than a saline rinse. And then, uh, again, I've had one or two parents come to me and say uh, they've had great success uh, uh, using uh, laser therapy. Uh, your, your, your thoughts on, on that? So uh, laser therapy inside the nose is quite controversial. Um, it depends what they mean by laser. There's a few different things that people misinterpret as laser. There's a device called Rhino Science, which is actually just a, a luminescent light, uh, where there is a few poorly controlled studies that have showed may help. Um, laser to the turbinate itself is a very ineffective way of treating the turbinate. Um, you can, you're better off doing what's called a submucosal resection with either coblation or radiofrequency. But again, the technique that we're doing has been demonstrated in head-to-head -head studies, randomized control to be significantly better than doing uh, other treatment options. I think if you get into the level where you're putting a laser up a child's nose, you should really be thinking about a, a equally as safe but more effective treatment like a turbinate blasting. Perfect. So, Larry, uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, uh, great information as always. Larry, um, if a parent wants to contact you um, because obviously their, side, their kid has all the things we've discussed, do they need to go through a GP or can they self-refer directly to your rooms? Um, they will need a GP referral or a referral from a wonderful dentist or orthodontist like yourself um, uh, just to facilitate the, the, uh, the actual referral itself, unfortunately, can't be. But they can book in straight away and then get a GP referral after that. 
Perfect. Well, thanks very much uh, for your time. Um, uh, enjoy the uh, rest of uh, your uh, weekend. And um, thanks again for all you do for all my patients uh, who, I, I mean, I, I, I work with a number of, you know, throat doctors and, you know, um, I've never had one parent or patient come back unhappy after seeing you. So uh, that speaks a lot for your uh Uh, your knowledge, but also your bedside manner. So thanks again, Larry. Thank you so much. And thank you for your unbelievable education uh, initiatives. They are actually quite phenomenal. Thank you for the friendship that you've you've, you've endured, but more importantly, the connection you have, recognizing that everything we do is a team game. And it's it's really very smart top orthodontists like yourself who recognize that you can't just make their teeth straight. You've got to work with dentists. You've got to work with uh, oral myologists and you've got to work with your friendly ENTs to work it out. It's just, just very admirable. So congratulations to you as well. Perfect. Thank you very much, Larry. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks for doing this. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Kids Sleep Health Podcast brought to you by Full Face Orthodontics. For more information about Dr. Mahoney's work, visit fullfaceorthodontics.com.au or visit his social media pages listed in the show notes.